Welcome to the Oxford Human Rights Hub seminar podcast series. This podcast is a recording of a lecture by Professor Jill Marshall on human rights and personal identity, delivered at the Oxford Faculty of Law on 24th of February 2015. This lecture series was proudly supported by the Oxford Human Rights Hub and the Oxford Martin School Human Rights for Future Generations program. My name is Jakob Osman and I'm the program coordinator for the Oxford Martin School program Human Rights for Future Generations and I'm pleased to welcome you all to this um, joint seminar together with our program and the Oxford Human Rights Hub and we're very glad to have today uh, to speak to us from the University of Leicester, um, Professor Jill Marshall will be talking about human rights law and personal identity. And um, um, she's promised to, to talk for about 40 minutes or so, and then we have about 20 minutes for, for questions and answers. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for the invitation uh, to all concerned at Oxford Human Rights Hub and the uh, Human Rights for Future Generations programme. They both sound absolutely fascinating, and I look forward to hearing a little bit more about them afterwards. Uh, my book came out in, in June 2014, uh, human Rights Law and Personal Identity, and I was asked to come to speak today uh, a, a little bit around the issues involved in the book, and I thought I'd give you uh, some examples from the book as well, uh, and I'll particularly be focusing on uh, the burqa ban in, in France as the, as the main example, but there are some other examples uh, that I hope to touch on. So, time permitting, uh, I'll be able to do that, but um, I, I might some, skip some sections, so hopefully it will all be quite coherent. Um, the three main strands of my project in general uh, are uh, firstly to do with personal freedom. It's uh, an extremely important issue for me in terms of my research, uh, and in terms of thinking about a legal and political structure that will enable personal freedom to come into existence and to be protected. Uh, and that includes, then, sort of secondly, uh, providing uh, and making sure that there are certain social conditions uh, of freedom available to empower individual people uh, to, able, to be able to then have their own personal freedom uh, and not restrict us, but have an empowering sense of personal freedom. So there's different types of freedom that I've analysed. Um, then thirdly, uh, that's in this book in particular, it was developed in the book, this idea of personal identity, uh, perhaps as sort of an offshoot, well, certainly in my view, as an offshoot of different sort of concepts in law in terms of privacy uh, in particular, and the right to respect for one's private life under Article 8 of the European Convention, but personal identity developments in human rights law that can be interpreted in many different ways. Obviously, these are vast concepts. They're quite uh, woolly, uh, abstract, uh, and they can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, and so, as I was in, going through my research and writing, writing up the book and rearranging it, etc., uh, and looking at different examples, I thought that in many ways courts uh, and others, the law and political systems, are increasingly restricting our freedom, our so-called personal freedom, even though we're supposed to be living in an age of liberation uh, and in the age of individuality uh, in, in particular, uh, perhaps in certain countries, including the one we live in. Uh, and in my previous book, um, there's some flyers floating around uh, from 2009, uh, I, I did look at how uh, 
the courts have interpreted that right to personal identity from Article 8's right to respect your private life. Uh, but in different ways to constrain human dignity and human freedom, uh, which in, in the interpretation I sort of put on it, focuses on the core of who we are uh, and our, ident- our, our dignity uh, as a process of self-discovery and fitting with a version that encourages us to find out who we already are, what is our essence, uh, authentically uncovering uh, who we really are some sort of ideas of true identity. Uh, and we will then be truly free if we recover this essence in some way and go to the real core of our identity. Uh, and then my categorization contrasts that with, the, uh, with um, an empowering view of identity, uh, human dignity and human freedom. Uh, and this version is uh, evidenced in interpretations uh, from a long line, and both of these are. You know, this isn't particularly new. It's interpreting it in certain ways and connecting it to human, law, human rights law. So from Aristotle through to, to Marx, I use a sort of examples of essentialism and then empowering sort of from liberalism through to certain versions of feminism and certain versions uh, of, of postmodernism, but not all. Um, And these different versions point to various explanations as to what personal identity actually means in its formation, in its continuation, and in its end. And it also concerns how personal identity is perceived, not only by the person uh, concerned, him or herself, but by another person, uh, who's and another person, so that could be one person, lots of people, uh, in relationships, in society, and also in the legal, uh, in and by the legal system. Uh, and so, if certain types of identity aren't recognised uh, by those others, then um, that can be frustrating. And also, uh, if they only attach it to some idea of essence or core of our identity, then people themselves can constantly feel that they're failures. Uh, that they haven't achieved this sense of, of, of true freedom. And it can then lead to the state stepping in uh, and can mask coercion and, uh, in, my, in my view, cause injustices. Um, so in the 2014 book, um, these arguments uh, are developed with the aim of showing the interconnection between human rights law and personal identity and trying to take it wider than just looking at Article 8 in the European Convention, but looking at lots of different examples from lots of different uh, international treaties and trying to um, interconnect them in some way. So both personal identity and personal freedom, if you like, just tying that together, and human rights have been accused of being uh, individualistic, of being atomistic, of being based on a self-possessed version of the human being. Uh, And while I think that many of these critiques have much validity... I argue that human rights purpose, which is continually stated in the uh, treaties, is respecting human dignity and human freedom, and that entails more than than a protection uh, of somehow already pre-existing, self-sufficient, fully grown, rational, fully able-bodied and mentally competent adults. for for human rights law to try to aim towards some sort of purpose that it's supposed to have of respecting human freedom and human dignity. There is a need for an environment to exist and to be sustained where personal identity is created 
developed and nurtured. And then this seems to me to mean that we need to acknowledge the intersubjective quality of all our personalities. Uh, so in terms of thinking then about human rights, there's a universal declaration of human rights says that we're all born free and equal by virtue of being human. The freedom and equality of the individual human being is the foundation of modernity and the various uh, interpretations that do lay the, the groundwork for the legitimacy of the state and the role of law in our lives, uh, from Hobbes to Locke to Rousseau and beyond. And while that's sort of been a sort of history, I think this is really particularly pertinent in the times that we're living in. Um, the freedom and equality of the human being is particularly important when thinking of human rights law, which is supposed to apply to everyone by virtue of being human. But of course, the more that's dissected, the more people find it problematic. Um, the objective, uh, as I've said, is, of human rights law is to respect human dignity and human freedom of everyone, indicating that legal rights rest on moral normative uh, project of individual human beings having a good life in some sense. Uh, so I want to hold on to rights discourse um, and say you know, that rights talk, um, as Marianne Glendon has called it, um, is, is an important discourse, particularly when people are socially powerless. Their own personal freedom, starting with the imagination in their own heads, can lead to empowerment. Uh, and human rights law uh, can play a role um, in how those heads develop. Uh, and how the ideas within the heads become their own, uh, through human rights to education, to the regulation of home life, and to care uh, when we all need when, when born and growing up. Um, so I'm going to skip certain parts of the sort of human rights, because I'm sort of assuming that you do know quite a lot about the different articles, but just to mention Article 22 of the Universal Declaration and Article 29, do not talk about some sort of solipsistic, atomistic human being uh, in terms of being able to realise their rights, in terms of the, the realisation of their rights to dignity, uh, but they talk about the free development of their personality uh, in a community in which alone th th this development is possible. So that's already there enshrined in the, in the Declaration. Uh, so it's not assumed that personality sort of just happens without any assistance or support or interconnection with other people. Uh, so the realisation of one's dignity and freedom of personality <coughs> formation takes part and takes place in a social setting. Um, however, I say that even though we've got a social se setting and a social context, it's argued that it is, it's still your life and no one else's. So no one else can live one's life, you know, no one else can live my life for me. I have to live my life. Um, and it is possible for me to interpret what happens to me and to make decisions and take responsibility for them. Uh, we do not live alone. Um, who we are involves identification with uh, and in a sense of finding something in common with or being similar to other human beings. Um, it almost always entails also unidentification with others in the sense of being different and distinct from those others. So we've got this universal sense of belonging, but yet difference from others. And this is a crucial tension in our consideration of who we are, of our personal identity. So that tension is evident in human rights law, seeking to somehow enshrine ideas of the human being both as an individual, including as a member of certain groups or cultures, 
uh, which for many people is intrinsic to who they are, uh, and as a member of the human species to be accorded dignity, freedom and equality. So in terms of thinking of this in a sort of more legal context of legal personal identity uh, and rights to personal identity, uh, who or what what a person is has legal implications. Um, We've got firstly elements that are in common with all humans, which are often described in in legal and political theory as in some sense pre-social or forming the essence of all persons. Um, Secondly, we've got certain characteristics such as sex, race, nationality, religion, uh, which are shared in common with others often grouped together socially or politically. Thirdly, what makes a particular person unique includes ideas of continuity in their own life, their projects and choices, knowledge and understanding, also of their particular parentage, of their origins and their past experiences and commitments to their own family, Uh, also their intellectual capacity and talents. Um, And a lot of these issues, I think, um, now are developing more in terms of thinking about uh, reductionism or essentialism in terms of uh, genes and biology. So you see sort of a development down that route, I think, as well. In most countries, a person's identity is recorded on birth. The fact of person's existence has to be legally registered and some form of birth record produced. This consists of certain components of that person's identity, often including their place of birth, their sex, their name or names, uh, and uh, certain details of parentage, depending on where one lives, um, which country. And many think that such a record is needed to comply with a person's human rights to know who they are, their identity. It implies that who we are exists at birth, Uh, And certain aspects of this fixing of identity can, however, be changed in some circumstances, and that has been accepted uh, in (coughs) certain instances. So, for example, a transsexual person uh, who has been granted a full gender recognition certificate in the United Kingdom and similar legal provisions in, in some other countries can obtain a new birth certificate detailing their new name and gender. Although the original birth certificate remains in existence, it is not available uh, to the public. Uh, Also, children are adopted and will have an adoption certificate and can apply for a copy of their original birth certificate when they're 18. Uh, Elements of a a person's identity must also be recorded on marriage and death in a passport or identity document. And increasingly, then, the reproductive technological advances impact on personal identity uh, questions and queries and issues. Uh, There are legal consequences if a person is born of a surrogate or through gamete donation. And in terms of a human right to personal identity or to personality, um, I end up in the book saying it's not at all clear what this right actually means. Um, And in recent years, such a right has been interpreted from Article 8, um, and in some countries it's more important than others. Some countries have constitutions uh, which specifically mention a right to personality in particular um, in Germany. Um, they have, present a right to human personhood, personal identity uh, and personality. Uh, of course, when you think about a human rights personal identity and human rights and personal identity, it could actually encompass every human rights and all different provisions of human rights because it begins with the right to life 
that relates in some way to existence, to living a life, to living a life of dignity and worth, to living without fear, with shelter, in a safe and healthy environment. So the more I started to look into lots of different things in connection with writing the book, I could see that really could cover so much that I couldn't possibly cover in any great, in, in lots of great depth in one book. So I sort of hoped that when I wrote the book that a lot of people would be reading it and think, I'm particularly interested in this bit, yeah, but Jill Marshall only covers this in like two pages, so I'll go off and do lots of research into it and develop it in some way. So hopefully it might uh, lead to, to someone doing that in different areas. Um, and so I think maybe if I talk a little bit more then about the specific examples, um, we've got ideas of you know, the, 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 this whole idea of freedom and equality in a, in a social setting is, is just so vast that in terms of human rights, it's sort of often tied into those Article 8 to 11 of the European Convention rights that are, that, that are qualified um, in terms of making choices about your life in some way, but we have to live in a society and how, to, how, do we, how are we able to sort of coexist when there's the rights and freedoms of others, etc. So making legal decisions as to permissible choices and lifestyle behaviours, uh, even a liberal democracy, um, causes problems, um, most evident in, in situations involving behaviour deemed offensive and found unacceptable by many and often the majority uh, in a particular country for a variety of reasons, and these are followed up through laws banning this uh, behaviour in the name of the majority's specific traditions, their cultures, their moral sensibilities and national principles. Human rights law uh, exists to assist those in need, and if one fits with society's norms and values and beliefs, um, I would have thought that one is more likely to be less in need of human rights law's protection. So it is those who don't fit into those, those ideas of, of society's norms, values and beliefs who need human rights law's protection more. That's not to say that it doesn't apply to everyone equally. Uh, and when it comes to certain interpretations of sex, religion and cultural expression, this can result in limited protection uh, of our, in, in, my, in my view, um, limited protection of our human rights and identity. These parts of who we are are seen as less important, uh, as not part of our fixed core essence. So this is certain interpretations of those. Uh, however, generally, those grounds uh, are seen as grounds for discrimination law, uh, and so therefore are uh, covered. But when I say certain interpretations, it means certain interpretations, not all. Okay, I'll try and explain that a little bit more uh, in a second. Um, and Lionel ben Bentley from uh, Cambridge compares this with the English... Um, well, he's compared... He's talking about identity in the law in his essay. Um, he's, he's compared this to English contract law of mistake, which I thought was a very interesting comparison, um, that certain things are not part of our identity... Uh, they're, they're pertaining to our attributes in some ways. They don't go to the fundamental uh, core of, 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 of the contract, if you like. They, they go to something um, which is peripheral. Um, and as such then, so when you're focusing again on human rights, they do not warrant protection, or at least not as much. Um, 
And in cases that seem to be based on a choice over one's appearance, such as a hairstyle or an item of clothing, identity rights are often of very little assistance. This shows the potential for disconnect between how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. Other people's experience of us through this manifestation leads to their judgments about us which are often inaccurate and do not fit with our own sense of identity. And this can lead to a lack of respect and recognition of our identities. What the law can do instead is to interpret identity as empowering and enabling us to live our own lives in and through a social context, in circumstances of our lived existence. And this, I, I argue, is more fair and just and in line with the purpose of human rights law, uh, an empowering, enabling and protecting interpretation of what it means to have human dignity and human freedom. Um, so in terms of that sort of balancing of the rights of others, and who I think it's important who holds power in those situations. And it seems society in some way accepts that some types of appearance are a reflection of who we really or truly are in the way that I talked about earlier in terms of that core fixed essence of, of, our, of our identity and of our person. And these do cover the grounds for discrimination. They're commonly mentioned in legislation and in the main these are race, sex, religion and disability. Uh, yet even for those grounds, legal success can be elusive. Um, and I've got some examples, but they're actually really from the US. And I don't really work in labour law. Um, Professor Fredman knows much, much more about this than, than me and has written much more about it. Uh, the different treatment can be explained often, I, I see in some of these cases, through uniform or hygiene policies in some way in the workplace or the supposed unreasonable and ostentatious style of appearance. Uh, there's been some case law in the US on hairstyles, um, and that's why people have been dismissed um, from work. Uh, that the work and the workplace dismissal was seen to be uh, to, to, to stand up to legal scrutiny because it wasn't see, deemed to be race discrimination or sex discrimination. It was to do with a hairstyle. Um, I think it's actually probably slightly different in this country, but uh, you know there, there were some cases with braids, with dreadlocks, finger waves, and these were seen as not being racial discrimination when people were dismissed. Uh, or um, we also see in the cases of um, the face veil. Uh, and different forms of religious clothing uh, which are seen to be too ostentatious or unreasonable uh, and also somehow often tied into well they don't really need to wear that for their religious beliefs so therefore you know, uh, but they sort of move away from that because it is their subjective religious belief and discrimination but, um, so we've got some examples that, that even in those sort of situations I think that, that legal success can be elusive um, obviously a right to freedom of religion and conscience is supposed to be uh, an absolute human right but freedom of religious expression uh, is not um, and I've mentioned uh, in the book quite a few different examples of it uh, and also then looking at full face veils in France uh, as I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know, in France, the full face veil is banned in all public places, uh, apart from very minor exceptions, uh, and also in Belgium um, since 2000, so, so since 2011 in France. And in the book, which came, 
was published and came out before um, the judgment in SAS against France, which came out in July uh, 2014, where the European Court of Human Rights found uh, in France's favour. So they decided by majority, uh, with two dissenting judgments, that uh, that there was no violation um, of Article 8 and 9, Articles 8 and 9. Uh, I argued in the book that these bans do violate Articles 8, 9, 10 and 14 and probably, 20, 30, sorry, and probably Article 3. Um, in terms of 8, 9 and 10, they're disproportionate uh, uh, under Article, uh, Paragraph 2 um, and also potentially actually Article 11 as well. Um, the bans interfere with the persons, in this case, a woman's freedom to develop her personality or identity uh, protected by human rights law. Uh, legally banning full face veils in liberal democracies in situations where an adult woman says she is freely chosen to wear it fails to respect and recognise the individual woman as a person in her own right. Legal bans misrecognise her and disrespect her identity as a human being, as a member of religious or cultural group and as an individual person capable of subjectively interpreting her own identity or personality as she sees fit. And I, I think that this argument is consistent with um, the decision of uh, Arslan against Turkey, uh, which was referred to in the SAS, but they distinguished it. Um, it in that case, um, the, the European Court found a violation of Article 9 in the criminal conviction of members of a religious group for wearing a distinctive dress of their group in, in public in Turkey. Uh, and that they said that this ban was disproportionate um, Human rights law. Um, then also in Vajni against Turkey, there are criminal proceedings brought against an applicant for wearing a five-pointed star, red star, as a symbol of the international workers' movement at a lawful political meeting, and it was found that Article 10 was violated. Uh, the court said that when freedom of expression is exercised as political speech, as in the present case, Limitations are justified in the, only insofar as there exists a clear, pressing and specific social need, which they um, then didn't find. So therefore, utmost, they said, utmost care and caution must be observed in applying any restrictions, particularly when the case involves symbols which have multiple meanings, and society must remain reasonable because to hold otherwise, the court asserted, would mean that freedom of speech and opinion is subjected to the heckler's veto. Uh, uh, the French ban applies to all face coverings, and it isn't described in, uh, as um, apply, only applying to the Muslim face veil. Uh, it says any face coverings are, are banned in public places. However, it's widely acknowledged in all the literature around the, the French debate uh, make it clear that it will impact, um, has impacted on a small minority of Muslim women who wear the full face veil, including the burqa and the niqab. Um, in um, in terms of the estimates, Human Rights Watch, uh, an NGO, has said that there. This was before the ban as well. Um, only about 700 to 2,000 women in France, and that was probably an overestimate, 
150 to 200 in Denmark and 300 to 400 women in Belgium who are actually wearing uh, this, this religious garment. Uh, and I concentrate in the book on human rights law. Uh, claims, of course, could be made under relevant anti-discrimination, equality and employment law, uh, in thinking more about security from terrorism and other illegal activities used as justifications for legal bans. However, these can all be addressed through uh, much less draconian measures. Uh, but the focus in this part of the book is on the misrecognition uh, and identity human rights violation involved in legally banning the wearing of the full face veil in all public places and failing to recognise the women who wear them uh, as a person in her own right uh, and it disrespects her identity. Um, in May and June 2010, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, uh, PACE, uh, clearly stated that full-face veil bans would not be supported. Um, they acknowledged that versions of gender equality arguments concerning the oppression of women through the wearing of the veil are important. However, they conclude that legal bans are not the way forward uh, through criminal law and legal bans are not the way forward in democracies. Uh, and they are stated to potentially adversely pressurise women to stay at home to confine themselves to being in contact with other women only, uh, make them stay away from public places, and to abandon work. This is all in line also with the views of the, the former Commissioner for Human Rights at the Council of Europe, Thomas Ham Hammerberg. He made clear that a general ban on the wearing of full face veil is an invasion of individual privacy and is alien to European values. As part of that process, I gave an opinion to the Equal Opportunities Commission as part of um, that PACE um, examination, which was in a much wider set, uh, uh, area of looking at Islamophobia in Europe. And the chair of the Equal Opportunities uh, Committee agreed with the position that I presented, which is largely then put in the book um, sometime later. But uh, the work that I did in uh, been looking at Islamic headscarves really followed from the Shaheen case, which is much earlier. Um, and uh, so I've got some things written about it in around 2006, 2008, etc. Uh, and so that, that work then developed uh, by looking at some of the work of, of recognition theorists um, to argue that uh, acknowledging a woman in, as a person in her... This, you know, maybe a woman wearing the burqa, for example... Um, as a person in her, in her own right with views worth listening to and taking into account uh, will give her recognition and when she sees this recognition in others including amongst other things and people through the law and the political system treating her in a particular way then the argument is that she's enabled to become conscious of her own sense of ownership of her decisions, responsibility and this is empowering um, uh, in, in terms of taking some sort of control uh, over one's own experiences. Uh, she may not want to take up an option to stop wearing the burqa or to wear something else, but she will be enabled to try to think in a way uh, that allows her to make whatever choices then she wants. But she should not be forced to do that. Legally banning her from doing this um, does not respect her. Uh, the, there are certain French feminists um, who were particularly vocal 
um, in terms of bringing this ban into existence. Um, their explanations make much of the barbaric, these are all in quotes, barbaric, undignified and inhumane nature of the full face bail and all they see it to stand for. Uh, and, and those representations were also made to uh, PACE at the committee meeting that I was at, uh, amongst, I'm sure, other others. Um, the proposed, PACE's proposals for, uh, went on to, to say there should be policies of awareness and social inclusion, uh, uh, focusing on the fact that women in socially deprived areas living in exclusively immigrant Muslim communities need education, employment and the provision of information. Uh, and so therefore, in terms of thinking about um, my sort of project, um, that will then end up enabling the fostering of a capacity to critically question existing social norms and structures, including the ones women find themselves in uh, or have voluntarily chosen to live in. Conditions will therefore exist where they may wish to change their minds and experiments with new ways of living, but they may not, and they may stay where they are and continue the way they are living. Uh, so legal bans are counterproductive, authoritarian and paternalistic. They're in opposition to rights enshrined in human rights law which indicate the fundamental quality of the value of any choices being made by belonging to and constituent of a particular person, that particular person themselves, and then having that recognised by others in, in the form uh, of law. Uh, and in the SAS judgment, then just to sort of very briefly follow that up, because it's not mentioned, the SAS um, case is mentioned, but the judgment hadn't come out uh, when I wrote the book and published, uh, published. But in the, the judgment, much is made of the importance of this idea of living together, of us being able, um, and that is seen to be um, a legitimacy, and, and seen, and the, the total ban is seen to be proportionate to that legitimacy. And, in terms of thinking of the rights and freedoms of others. So much is made of the importance of looking into another person's eyes, of looking at their face, of having open face-to-face -face communication. Uh, the points emphasised are really focusing on being in the presence of a person with their face covered makes the other person feel insecure. It makes it impossible to know the intentions of the person with their face covered. It arises the impression of criminal activities as it arises suspicion. Um, however, I think that this begs the question whose attitudes need to change. Um, the person perceiving another person's identity expressions or the person whose identity is being queried. It seems that the person whose identity is being queried is the one who has to change their, their, their identity and the, the way they look. Uh, so the fear of the other uh, and imposing criminality onto the wearing of a piece of clothing fails to recognise that other person completely in a democratic society as worthy of respect. Thank you for listening to this Oxford Human Rights Hub podcast. To find out more about the Oxford Human Rights Hub, visit our website at ohrh.ox.ac.uk. The Oxford Human Rights Hub, Global Perspectives on Human Rights.